Welcome fellow survivors to the second part of this special episode all about what happened in London. At the end of the last episode it seemed like Elizabeth Lizzie Cooper had seized the crown of England, quite literally. Not only that, but it seemed like my friend Colt was no friend of mine, but rather working for the Wade Adler Company. We had travelled to the National Strategic Archive and housed in its cavernous vaults with the most valuable treasures England had, as well as, according to Lizzie anyway, the authority of the English government. Oh, and a fully functioning television studio. Lizzie walked slightly precariously as she adjusted to the weight of the crown, but quickly became accustomed to it. The other Wade Adler Company employees were energetically working, and it seemed like they were getting ready to broadcast, and they seemed to know exactly what they were doing. Two people approached Lizzie, one wheeled in a compact box with a carefully selected assortment of cosmetic products, while the other had produced two immaculate outfits. While the first person worked on Lizzie's makeup, she mulled over the choice, finally choosing the red suit. Things were becoming increasingly surreal, and I could still hear the gun battle being waged above us between the Wade Adler Company's mercenaries and the fanatically loyal English soldiers. All of this was rather straining in my nerves. Colt was doing everything to avoid my gaze, ostensibly keeping an eye on the way we had ended for any English soldiers, but I knew it wasn't just that. Colt had been acting oddly for a little while, and this explained it all. Colt saw himself as a hero, and heroes don't work for the Wade Adler Company. And while it did explain some of his more recent behaviour, still, I couldn't quite believe it. The employee who had previously helped Lizzie choose her outfit approached me. Mr Oliver, after Miss Cooper's broadcast, there'll be some time for you to ask her some questions. For your podcast. I was shocked. I had anticipated that I would be seen as a rather hostile presence, and not someone who would be provided with interview time. The employee continued. Miss Cooper wanted me to make it clear that there were no out-of-bounds questions. You should feel free to ask whatever you want. I knew that in some way I was being tricked. That I was somehow reinforcing their position but I didn't know what else to do. I was beginning to think that Lizzie Cooper was a lot smarter than me, and that whether I took part or not didn't really matter, as she would think of a way to turn it to her advantage. And so feeling uneasy about the whole thing, I agreed. I have long been begrudgingly impressed by the staff of the Weird Adler Company, as almost all of them seem to possess a diverse range of skills, often completely unrelated to their official job title. Usually you find this out when a lower level filing clerk reveals themselves to be a martial arts expert. As such, I have long assumed that all of their employees are extremely dangerous people, no matter how dull their job title was. This was especially true of Lizzie Cooper, whose job of social media consultant should have ranked her in the bottom 1% of people in terms of their usefulness, but was surprisingly capable in a variety of situations. The other staff with us were a variety of social media and administrative staff would seem perfectly at home with the television broadcasting equipment. Lizzie was now standing behind the podium and looked every inch a world leader. She looked authoritative, commanding, dignified. Someone called for quiet in the studio and everyone fell silent, even while the gunfire could still be heard. I looked around the studio. As well as being broadcast on television, it was going out on radio, across the internet and a variety of other mediums. I half expected to see someone tapping it out on a telegraph. And then Lizzie Cooper started speaking. I think I had been expecting some bombastic speech citing patriotism, duty and St George. Something to rally the scattered population to her cause. I thought she would make grand promises about killing the monsters, fixing the infrastructure and restoring England's greatness. But she didn't. Instead, she read a brief statement. Basically stating that she, Elizabeth Cooper, was the new Queen of England and Head of State. 
and as such had all the powers of the old government, and that by taking possession of the vault, she had the complete cultural, political and national legacy of England. She also expected foreign powers to recognise her authority. And that was it. Anyone in England who had been watching and listening would have been completely baffled by the whole thing. As soon as the cameras were switched off, Lizzie kicked off her shoes and slipped the crown off her head. I have always thought of myself as against the idea of monarchy. It all seems a little medieval to me, and would clearly leave you with some pretty poor kings and queens. But the casual disregard with which Lizzie treated the crown shocked me. She actually threw it to one of her colleagues. Some residual monarchist feeling stirred outrage within me, and I clenched my fists. The staff went back into their flurry of activity. Lizzie herself vanished into a separate room and returned a moment later, changed back into her everyday clothes. I was prodded forward by a helpful staff member and erected to a seat. Lizzie sat opposite me, busily signing documents that her staff pushed in front of her. I tried to read what was written on them, but they were only before her for a split second before being whisked away. I noticed that no one was treating Lizzie like she was the Queen of England, which actually annoyed me as I had planned on doing that, and it rather stole my thunder. Do you mind if I work while we talk? asked Lizzie, and I shrugged, which she took as permission. So, you must have a lot of questions for me, Richard. And I did. And I think I just unloaded every question I had in one long, rambling sentence, punctuated with cursing. Lizzie listened patiently and answered as best she could. Instead of trying to explain the mad scramble of words, I shall simply put forth what she said in as straightforward a manner as possible. For Lizzie and the way I'd look me, this wasn't a coup. This wasn't even political. Lizzie didn't want to rule or even govern England. She had no desire to gain the love or support of the population. She didn't have a plan for improving England. As far as the way Adler Company were concerned, England was just fine the way it was. As I said, this wasn't political. The way Adler Company doesn't do politics. It was all business. The whole reason the way Adler Company had supported the train heading into England was to get a good look at the place. And England had exceeded the company's expectations. They had been across the country and found amazing scientific discoveries, rare and wonderful creatures, new ideas and philosophies. The few decades of apocalyptic life had created an environment that pushed human beings to their most creative and ingenious. So why change England at all? Why not leave it as a small, easily contained, apocalyptic outpost from which we, or more accurately the Wade Adler Company, could extract this genius? Lizzie confirmed my vague suspicions that it was indeed the Wade Adler Company who had kidnapped the variety of remarkable individuals who had crossed our paths and then mysteriously disappeared. That their agents had stolen, copied and studied every interesting piece of technology, scientific idea or philosophical outlook. I was shocked, but knew the central government authority would never allow this. Although they had their oversights and minor corruptions of any government, their whole raison d'etre was to rebuild the world and so the Weed Adler Company concocted a way to take control of England. The opinions and even the well-being of the people who lived in England were incidental, and they were at best a valuable resource. I heard they would need to occasionally offer support so they didn't all die. When I denied that they had a right to the throne of England, Lizzie explained that Sebastian Wade was related to the last monarch, cousins a few times removed. I was puzzled as to how they thought this helped them, then it dawned on me. Elizabeth, Lizzie Cooper was not just some random employee of the Wade Adler Company. She was related to Sebastian Wade. Yes, and dear grandpa died 48 minutes ago, said Lizzie, looking at her watch. You poisoned him, I asked, aghast at this example of Geronticide. Oh no, this was grandpa's plan. 
He poisoned himself. It was all his idea, said Lizzie. I was his heir. One of the most famous features of the capital was the London Underground, commonly known as the Tube. The world's first underground railroad was a genuine marvel when it first opened, and at its peak had nearly 6 million passenger journeys a day. Now, of course, the London Underground is silent. There are no more journeys. We used the tunnels that formed the London Underground to get into the city, and you could still use them as a way to navigate the city. Personally, I couldn't wait to be back on the surface, but the CGA team, showing their interest in city infrastructure, seemed generally interested in the tunnels. For as long as the underground had existed, there had been horror stories about what lurks in the darkness. From ghosts, to cannibals, to, well, the insect monsters that swarmed out of the tunnels during the apocalypse, shooting acid at everything and trying to eat people. Amazingly, once the monsters were dealt with, the London Underground continued to run for a while, but evidently it got a bit... weirder. Here are some of the reported oddities of that time. After the attack of the insects, the busiest station was Victory Bridge, a complex warren of platforms, staircases, lifts, through which millions of people pass through each day. Although it did seem that a significant number of people never made it out of that station, during the 18 months London Underground ran after the end of the insects, over 300 missing people's last known whereabouts were traced to be Victory Bridge Station. And even more curious, none of them had a good reason to go to the station. It seems like they just inexplicably decided to go there. What happened to them is something of a mystery, but it seems they disappeared on a stairwell between platforms 4 and 6. There were no suspects, but it was noted that people only seemed to vanish when copies of the free magazine Southern were being given out inside the station. The insectoid monsters had first been spotted on the river line, and some curious anxiety had lingered on with what had once been one of the busiest lines saw its passengers decrease by 95%. It became a ghost line, with even some staff refusing to go on it, and this vacuum of authority was filled by the river order. They started out as a sort of vigilante group, watching out for the monsters or any other nefarious goings-on, meeting out justice to everyone from litterers to, well, littering was often the worst thing they dealt with. But the trivial nature of the crimes did not result in paltry fines, and criminals received harsh justice, often being badly beaten. In a matter of weeks, the River Order had taken over virtually the entire land, conducting sham trials and doling out their increasingly over-the-top sentences. Eventually, they escalated to torture, mutilation, and even murder. The vigilante group turned into something like a cult. In a massive operation, the English Transport Police stepped in and the River Order was broken up with a lot of arrests being made. But many of the Order were never arrested, and for the remaining time the River Line was in use, people remained scared of committing any infraction of the rules, wary of any remaining members of the River Order hiding in the darkness. Different environments have different social conventions, and there was a long-standing convention that people on London Underground did not talk to each other. These were busy, metropolitan types who had no need for small talk about the weather, which was what made the conversation gangs all the more unusual. When these gangs started is not at all clear, but CCTV evidence and eyewitness testimony provided at least one good case study. On a cold April morning, a young man in his early 20s sat opposite a woman, a few years older than himself, and just started talking at her. Talking at her, not with her. The woman ignored him and carried on reading her book. After 11 minutes of this talking, the woman put her book away, but still did not reply. 
At the next station, both of them got off and together got onto another train. On this next train, both the man and the woman started talking at another person, who at first ignored them. Crucially, the man and woman were not talking with each other and trying to include the third person in conversation, but each just talked at him. The same thing happened, initially ignored, and then he joined them. The pattern repeated itself until the group had risen to 12, at which point it split up, some heading off individually, some in small groups, and started the whole process again. It was not after the London Underground had started a 24-hour service and these people just stayed down there, occasionally stopping for food and drink or to use station amenities. This carried on for almost 50 hours before it stopped and everyone seemingly returned to normal and got on with their lives. This was one case, but there were at least 25 other similar cases. The last example never reached its peaceful ending. At this point, civil war had already broken out in the city and both sides, completely terrified by what all this might mean, sent in the army to kill the conversation gangs. They also rounded up the now perfectly normal people who had been recruited and what happened to them was a mystery. Within days of this action, the London Underground was closed forever. People have wondered, was there some sinister purpose to the conversation gangs? Or was it just some psychological affliction brought on by the apocalypse? It has been suggested that during the apocalypse, many, many people died who were absolutely harmless, but the authorities simply panicked. Was this just another example of that? Back to the narrative. So assuming this was true, then it seemed like Lizzie Cooper could legitimately claim to be the Queen of England. Queen Elizabeth III, as it were. Ah, listen to that, said Lizzie happily. I listened and explained that I couldn't hear anything aside from the gentle buzz of activity from her colleagues. Then it clicked. There was no gunfire. Lizzie had turned away from me and towards the hole in the wall we had made getting into the vault. Accompanied by the mercenaries were the English soldiers. They were an odd sight, mixing pre-apocalyptic military equipment and improvised post-apocalyptic weapons. They had the tough, grizzled appearance you see on people who have had a hard apocalypse. After all, they had been doing this job for decades. I did notice a number of younger people, people who could not have possibly been soldiers when the apocalypse died. Presumably they were civilians who had joined up. They also looked mildly suspicious, not quite sure of what was going on. Presumably they had heard Lizzie's broadcast, but didn't quite know what to make of it. If they believed Lizzie's broadcast, then they were her soldiers, her army. Again, Lizzie did not do what I expected. Instead of thanking these men and women who had continued their service through extraordinary circumstances and promising them grand rewards, she fired them. Technically, she simply disbanded the military, saying it was no longer necessary and any security needs could be handled more efficiently by private contractors. There was some talk of pensions and possibly of back pay, but I doubted they would get anything worth having. I was convinced the soldiers would kill us all. I could only imagine the shattering blow that would come to soldiers who had fought for decades, simply out of an idea of loyalty, to be so simply tossed aside. There was a brief moment of tension when I think the assembled English soldiers considered their options, but it passed. I couldn't help blurt out, don't let her do this, but they ignored me and simply desolately trudged out of the vaults. Some simply let their weapons fall to the ground. Lizzie turned back to me, a little flustered by the dejected soldiers, and was about to continue when another one of her colleagues called her over. Lizzie, you're going to want to see this. 
I followed Lizzie and we went right to the back of the vault. And again, everyone was crowded round another secure door. Lizzie and some of her colleagues had a hushed conversation, seemingly eager to keep the details from me. But I did make out one word. Stasis. Determined to find out, I pushed myself forward. The door was cold to the touch, and unlike the other vaults, there was a small window. Inside the vault were rows of metal containers, about seven feet in length, with the top half made of glass, and a great number of wires and flashing lights. Approaching the situation with the same light touch they had for the main vault, the Weird Adler companies brought out their drilling equipment rather than the explosives. Even so, it only took a few minutes to get inside. The room was cold and the air had a stale quality to it. As I approached the nearest pod, I could just make out a person through the almost opaque glass. There was a screen on the side which displayed vital signs. What is it? I asked to anyone who could answer, and a lot of people could. It was a stasis pod. While not completely effective in stopping time as cryogenics could, it was a good and cheaper alternative. And it came without all the problems of defrosting a living human. The pod maintained the person in their coma, fed them nutrients, even sent electrical signals into their muscles to stop them atrophying. The screen also displayed a name, Catherine Drake, and I had absolutely no idea who that was. I went to the next pod, Christopher Webley, the next, Dion Crow. None of these names meant anything to me. Were they just random English people the old government had tried to preserve? It was Lizzie who found the first well-known person, and it made her extremely unhappy. It was a man, Edwin Pendrave, Duke of Mercia, and before the apocalypse, 16th in line to the Crown of England. Or, he had been 16. It must have been a terrible realisation that for all of her planning, all of her schemes, this person had a better claim to the throne. One of the Weird Adler Company employees had sat at the only computer terminal in the room and trying to work out what was going on. She told us these were high-ranking civil servants and other important people. People who could be useful in rebuilding the country. When someone asked why I'd never heard any of these supposedly useful people, the employee added the caveat that they were the highest-ranking and most important people left in England. A pretty sorry bunch, as it seems. People who were once mid-ranking government employees and irrelevant aristocrats, who due to the utter destruction of the country had received some quite staggering promotions. Lizzie didn't take this well. She asked for a gun and there was an awkward silence. She repeated the request more firmly and still no one did anything. Lizzie stormed over to one of her employees and snatched the gun from his holster and marched back towards Edwin's pod and fired. The bullet cracked the glass but didn't make it through. Lizzie screamed in frustration and fired twice more and still she couldn't get through. Open them up, she yelled, pointing the gun at the employee who sat at the computer terminal. Which one? They asked quietly. I, I, don't, I don't know which one you want me to open. And everyone tensed themselves, waiting for Lizzie to fire at this unfortunate employee. But she didn't. Instead, Lizzie strode over and angrily bashed the keyboard, typed in the command to open all the pods. Second later, there was a chorus of loud hisses as the pod began to open. Lizzie walked back to Edwin's pod, ready to end her rival claimant to the throne of England. Perhaps it's because I was so young when the apocalypse started, but I've never really understood the point of sport. Don't get me wrong, I can see how a bunch of people playing a game is fun to be part of, 
but the weird obsession Priya Apocalypse Society has with sport is utterly baffling. In the long and dull nights of the apocalypse, many older people reminisced about sport, or if we were lucky enough to have sufficient power, watched old games on television. So I have watched what has held up as the greatest moment in the history of English sport, the 1966 World Cup Final. And my God was I bored. For years there was no organised sport, as there wasn't the resources to stage competitions, and certainly impossible to organise games against other communities. However, there were some exceptions. It's probably not surprising to learn that apocalyptic sport has a bit more of an edge to it, and there is a lot of violence, and even death. When I visited Boston a number of years ago, all the city could talk about was the upcoming contest between two teams that had been long-time rivals. I thought it was something akin to professional wrestling, with over-the-top violence and ridiculous characters. And while it did share some things with the sport, it was 100% real. It was a fight between humans and vampires. Well, it starts off just being the one vampire, but in the course of the contest, they can make more. It's really a hunt more than sport, but it takes place in a massive stadium and you can buy big foam hands and t-shirts. The human players even have a strip or uniform to wear, which gives it very much a sports-like atmosphere. I've never liked hunting for sport, as it never seemed terribly fair, pitting a gang of humans with weapons and dogs against a single animal. And while this may still be rather barbaric, it does seem a great deal fairer. The vampire tends to survive relatively unscathed. The humans are not so lucky. I was surprised to learn that both humans and vampires are volunteers. No one is forced into it. This hunt was of particular relevance as the captain of the human team, Brock Bauman, had some history with the vampire, Korostat. She had killed his two brothers and his father in previous bouts, and this angle was played up endlessly by the promoters. Although I didn't stay to watch, I did learn that Korostad went 4 for 4 with the Bauman family. Next we have the utterly bizarre and often wonderful spectacle of the Beyond Human Challenges held annually in Mexico, and attracts competitors from all over North and South America. The challenges are various contests designed to pit the best of mankind against the best technology mankind can make. There have been some arguments about whether the humans really count as humans, as they are all superhumans of some kind or another. I was lucky enough to watch the 10th Beyond Human Challenges, and the rather famous contest between Alejandro Molina and the XT4000 Firebird. There were 20 competitors in the race, but everyone knew it was between these two. Now, if it was simply a foot race, then Molina would win, as he could run faster than the Firebird's top speed of 278 miles per hour. But it's something more akin to an assault course, and was far too long for Molina to stay at his top speed. Importantly, with the Beyond Human Challenges, there is no need for blood to be shed, but accidents are very common. There is something amazing in watching a human moving at speeds in excess of 300 miles an hour, while a 15-foot-tall robot crashes through obstacles just behind him. The Firebird had been the heavy favourite, with the robot beating Molina in the last five contests. But Molina won in a photo finish that led to a 10-minute standing ovation. Molina has not raced since due to injuries sustained in that victory, and it is worth pointing out that superhuman abilities come with superhuman damage done to the body. There have been a number of world-famous athletes since the apocalypse, and there is much debate about who is the best and how they compare to athletes before the apocalypse. Obviously, you, you can't compare someone like Alejandro Molina to people who didn't possess superpowers but there are others who make for an interesting debate. 
To me, a person not interested in sports, the standout figure of post-apocalyptic sport is Nadine Lodestone, the Welsh youngster and surely the greatest athlete of all time in my opinion. There is one word repeatedly used to describe Lodestone, and that is perfection. Starting as a tennis prodigy, in her crushingly brief career of only 13 months, she competed and won in golf, boxing, figure skating, cycling, and a number of other sports. She was seemingly perfect at all these things, with flawless technique while possessing no special powers or even particularly impressive physical abilities. And despite all this talent, she never competed professionally, limiting her activities to amateur competitions. That's not to say she didn't compete against professional champions. Many of them couldn't resist the challenge and registered for her amateur competition only to be defeated by her. She played against all genders and never turned down a challenge as long as it wasn't for money. Nadine retired at the age of 24 and died four years later due to an undisclosed illness. Much has been said about what made her perfect. Her lack of family and friends and the mysterious circumstances of her death have led to some people claiming she was no normal human, and with some even claiming that she was the literal living embodiment of perfection. Even as someone not interested in sport, I think her story was truly fascinating. The next few minutes are at best a hazy recollection of what actually happened, and I add the caveat that I cannot claim this version of events to be 100% accurate, but it is the best I can do. Lizzie had reached Edward's pod and brought her pistol to bear when she paused. At first I thought maybe conscience had gotten the better of her, but I soon realised the cause of her hesitation. Edward Pendrafe had been an attractive man, athletic, handsome, and even despite his prematurely greying hair, but what emerged from that pod was not recognisable as Edwin Pendrave. It was barely recognisable as human. The creature was a malformed mass of flesh, with tentacles erupting from its skin. Gross physical mutations had taken hold as well as, b- as a bizarre skin discoloration and a web of prominent grey veins. The surprise would have given anyone pause, but as the creature pulled itself from the pod, its gaze fixed on Lizzie, she fired. The bullet struck the creature in the shoulder and it toppled forward into a writhing mass on the floor, but still slowly edging towards Lizzie. A tentacle snapped out and wrapped itself around her foot. Of course, because of Lizzie's impatience, it wasn't just the Duke of Mercy's pod that had been opened. It was all of them. I watched aghast as dozens of mutants lurched out of their pods and moved towards us. Some of Lizzie's colleagues rushed to help her. Some drew their weapons and opened fire, and a couple ran. I was transfixed, unable to move before the scene of horror. Someone barged into me in an effort to get past and I fell. As I lay on the ground, several people simply ran over me and I was convinced I was going to be killed by fleeing Weird Adler Company employees trampling me. Then, suddenly, I was free of the crowd. I watched as Colt pushed the employees out of the way and helped me to my feet. Get out of here, he said, pushing me towards the way out. I ran out of the vault, and despite the danger, I did stop for a moment to have one last lingering look at all that gold, and then kept running. I ran past the mercenaries, who for some reason thought it was a good idea to run towards the sound of gunfire, and finally managed to make it to the ground floor of the building, where I stopped to catch my breath. Around me were the recently disbanded English soldiers, chatting, playing cards, and seemingly oblivious to what was going on. I quickly explained about the horrific monsters below, and they gave a collective shrug. It wasn't their job anymore. Just as I had recovered enough to consider running again, 
something wrapped around my foot. I looked down and saw a thick red tentacle pulling me back. I tried to pull myself away, but it was soon obvious in a battle of strength the mutant would win. Still, I thought it was worth trying, even if it was just to demonstrate that I took the position that I should be alive rather than dead. The mutant crawled up the stairs towards me. The tentacle actually came from its mouth, so perhaps it's worth discussing whether it was a tentacle or a tongue. But at the time, I didn't make any notes that would help settle the matter now. From what I could see of the creature, it looked worse for wear. Broken bones jutted from its surface, and bullet wounds were liberally dotted around its body, but it didn't seem too phased by these injuries. With every passing second, not only was I pulled back, but the creature edged forward. When I was mere inches from the creature and was trying to work out whether it planned to just kill me or eat me, fate intervened. Well, actually, it was a gleamingly sharp machete blade, which was brought down against the tentacle. A strong hand pulled me away from the creature. Watch yourself there, chief, said the English soldier who'd saved me. He aimed a shotgun at the mutant and fired, knocking the creature off its feet. One of his comrades stepped forward for it looked like a makeshift flamethrower, which he soon demonstrated was exactly what it was, setting the creature ablaze. The first soldier helped me to my feet. You can't really kill him, he said. You just gotta stop him moving. Fireworks, well. You know what they are, I asked. They're the infected. The ones we were here to keep quarantined, said the woman carrying the flamethrower. That's what happens to them after years of infection. I thanked them for sticking around to rescue me when the two soldiers suddenly looked awkward. Well, the thing is, chief, said the first soldier, we're not soldiers anymore. We've decided to become mercenaries. It seemed like the English soldiers had learned a lot from Lizzie. What transpired was a very polite discussion about what saving me should cost. Although in fairness, I do think if I had refused to pay, they wouldn't have made too much of a fuss. I didn't have much of value on me, but they took my bulletproof vest, my hip flask and my watch, and they even let me finish the whiskey and the flask as a discount for being a fellow English citizen. With the battle continuing downstairs, they planned to use their experience and expertise in dealing with the creatures to strike a very lucrative deal. While the Weird Adler Company are famously difficult negotiators, I think the soldiers had quite a bit of leverage. Despite the hugely important events that were going on in the vaults of the building, I had to get out of there. I know there are many journalists who have risked or even lost their lives to cover an important story. I'm not one of them. Yes, the Queen of England was battling mutants surrounded by stacks of gold bars and the great works of English culture, but I wasn't sticking around to meet more mutants. Even though the fate of my country was being decided, I was too afraid to find out what happened. Later on I realised it had never actually occurred to me to intervene one way or another. I left the National Strategic Archive and headed towards Annette Vesca's team. I met them halfway as they'd been heading to the archive themselves. Lizzie's broadcast had mentioned the cultural treasures housed there and they wanted to see what was there. Even after I had told Vasca about the mutants and the battle that had still been going on when I left, she still wanted to go. In fact, the suggested danger made her even more determined to save those items before it was too late. Vasca's team eventually talked her around and we headed back to the tunnel we had used to get into London. The extremely put-out CGA team were waiting for us. As Lizzie had suggested, Downer Street had not been very useful, and they now felt they had been beaten to the punch by the Weird Adler Company. I didn't know what the CGA's response would be to the Weird Adler Company stealing England out from under them, but judging from their previous behaviour, probably just a strongly worded letter. Of course, it was entirely possible that Lizzie Cooper, alias Queen Elizabeth III, 
had died fighting the mutants. I have no idea what happened to them. None of them, Colt and Lizzie included, made it back to the train. The carriages that had been used by the Weird Adler Company had somehow vanished and there was little evidence they had ever been on board. When the CGA contacted the Wade Adler Company headquarters, they were very taciturn and wouldn't give away anything about the fate of their missing people, but insisted that England was still theirs. We'll leave it there for this week, with the future of England in something of a state of flux. At the end of the line was written and recorded by Richard Oliver. As you may have noticed, we now have some theme music, as I'm finally getting my act together and sorting out little things like that. Our theme music is by Chip Michael, Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash chipmichael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savant podcast, which I highly recommend. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at postapocpodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help, should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>